questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. During this so-called pandemic, we are all starving for truth. That is why in the past few weeks I've made a departure from our traditional topics in order to cover this event to the best of my ability. Tonight we have someone with the necessary credentials to question the script that is being played out. Someone many of you probably know already since he has been featured all over the world in the past few weeks. And if you want the truth from a doctor whose motto, like me, with Veritas, he also uses a Latin term. His motto is Medicamentum Authentica, which means authentic medicine in Latin. And it is the standard he adscribes to when he presents health information. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Fabregas. Today's special guest is Dr. Andrew Kaufman, MD, a natural healing consultant, inventor, public speaker, forensic psychiatrist, an expert witness. He completed psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center after graduating from the Medical University of South Carolina and has a bachelor degree in science from MIT in molecular biology. He has conducted and published original research and lectured, supervised, and mentored medical students, residents, and fellows in all psychiatric specialties. He has been qualified as an expert, witness in local, state, and federal courts. He has held leadership positions in academic medicine and professional organizations. He ran a startup company to develop a medical device he invented and patented. And with these great credentials, I'm excited and honored to introduce Dr. Andrew Kaufman to the Veritas audience. Hello, Dr. Kaufman, and welcome. Well, hi, Mel. Uh, Thank you so much for that nice introduction. Well, it's a privilege for me, and you've been all over the world in the past few weeks and in the most respected alternative shows out there. And most of our listeners, I bet you they know who you are already. But I want to know, when did you start questioning what is currently being played out Well, uh, almost immediately uh, when I heard about what was happening in China, um, especially when they started instituting uh, some very uh, draconian procedures over there. So um, I I, my radar uh, went off and uh, I smelled something fishy and I started looking into things right away. Do you think this virus was manufactured or was it naturally occurring? Well, I actually don't think there's any evidence of a virus uh, at all. That is, and be, that is one thing that a lot of people are wondering now. Please explain that. Yeah, sure. So um, I came to this, uh, you know, with an open mind, and I had been studying uh, germ theory, uh, which is uh, the theory that, uh, you know, germs like viruses or bacteria cause disease. And there are a lot of problems with the science behind that. And so when I started looking into um, how the scientists claim to identify uh, a virus or a new virus that they eventually called uh, SARS-CoV-2, I discovered that uh, the procedures they were using were actually not uh, formulated uh, in such a way that they could possibly uh, find a new virus. And uh, it took quite a bit of, um, you know, reading and thinking and research to, to come to this conclusion. But essentially what they've done is, is very poor scientific procedures. So some of the main principles that you would use when designing an experiment, such as separating variables from each other so they could be measured independently and using uh, controls for your experiments 
to make sure that you're not finding uh, um, a signal that's not present, like an artifact, uh, that they did not employ these uh, techniques at all in the way that they uh, alleged to have isolated a new virus. Is there evidence that the coronavirus is causing, or COVID-19 rather, is causing disease? No, there's uh, there's no evidence um, of a virus that's been isolated, and there's certainly no evidence that any virus is causing any new disease. In fact, uh, when I look at the numbers of overall mortality, I don't see any evidence of a new disease at all. Is this because a lot of diseases like heart disease or cancer or some of the others, all of a sudden you see this precipitous downward spiral in the past few months. Is it because they're replacing one with the other? Yeah, that's definitely my opinion. If you look at, uh, for example, the overall all-cause mortality on the CDC website, what you see is uh, the most recent uh, time I looked at it is that this year there are 6% less deaths overall than last year, given the same time frame. So like from January 1st to the present date. So this suggests that there's no new cause of mortality since the overall death rate is essentially the same or slightly reduced. In addition to that, if you look at specific causes of deaths, as you mentioned, like heart disease, you see that it has dropped down considerably from the last several years. Um, and there have been other examples of this as well, such as influenza and pneumonia are down significantly. So if you take into account the instructions that have been given by the CDC and other public health agencies on how to fill out death certificates, um, also consider how there is a differential uh, hospital billing and reimbursement depending on being diagnosed with COVID-19. You can basically see that they are essentially just relabeling people dying of other causes as dying of COVID-19. And this serves the purpose to inflate the numbers of deaths directly attributable to COVID-19. But that's a false premise because there is no uh, burden of proof to say that someone died from the cause of COVID-19, uh, the way the instructions are given. So take this into consideration with looking at the all-cause mortality or the overall death rate, and it paints a picture that basically people's deaths are being relabeled as COVID-19, but there's no evidence of any increased number of deaths or any new cause of death. How accurate are the tests being used, and is there a gold standard for testing? Well, there should be a gold standard. And in fact, um, I've been taught since medical school that any time you develop a new diagnostic test, the way to evaluate that test is to compare it with a gold standard. That way you can calculate an accuracy and an error rate, uh, as well as other characteristics that would be important to know when you employ the test. The two types of tests that were developed uh, for diagnosing COVID-19 are not uh, based on a gold standard and they neither of them measure a virus. Um, in fact, there's never been a gold standard employed to test them against. So they essentially are uh, were, were evaluated with nothing to compare to. So thus, uh, they couldn't possibly be accurate. Um, in addition, it's not clear what they're testing for. And this is part of the research that I was talking about that is not designed properly to measure what they claim to measure. So for example, the procedure by which they found an RNA sequence that is the basis of the PCR test. And that is the test that's most uh, commonly used. And it's the one that takes several days to get a result. So what they did is they had just a very small group of patients initially who had respiratory symptoms. They had a, a group of nine patients. And all, out of seven of those nine patients only, they were able to pull lung fluid and identify an RNA sequence. RNA is a type of genetic material that usually comes from DNA, but it can also be turned into DNA through a reverse transcription process. And what happened is they took this lung fluid, but did not purify it. And the lung fluid contains many sources of DNA and RNA, including but not limited to our own lung cells, our own immune cells, the bacteria and fungi and viruses that normally live in our body, 
um, as well as free uh, RNA material, um, as well as RNA or DNA from exosomes, which are secretions from our own cells. So what they did is took this lung fluid and mixed it with an enzyme to break apart the cell membrane so that any genetic material contained inside of a cell membrane was released into the solution. And then it could be measured by various techniques to look for uh, specific sequences. So this was done and a sequence of RNA was identified, but it was not identified from a pure source. So the origin is unknown. The main reason that they claimed that this was related to a coronavirus was because when they took the sequence of this specific RNA strand, they compared it to a previous coronavirus called SARS-CoV-1. And that was the virus that they alleged was responsible for the SARS outbreak in 2003. And the way that they said that these were related was that there was a just under an 80% uh, sequence identity between the two strands. And they said that was enough to show that it's a coronavirus. However, if we look at the sequence identity between humans and chimpanzees, we'll find that that's 90% identical. Yet, I don't think anyone in your audience would classify us as chimpanzees. But that's essentially what they did based on a much lower sequence identity of less than 80%, so more than 16% less identity. And that's essentially how they have claimed to identify that there is a novel coronavirus. Don't you find it interesting that the Johns Hopkins University was one of the sponsors for Event 201, the pandemic exercise organized by the Gates Foundation last October? And now they are the ones keeping the centralized count of cases and deaths due to COVID-19 worldwide. What's your take on that? Well, it, it seems like a, quite an unlikely coincidence. I mean, the World Economic Forum and the Gates Foundation did sponsor that event and coordinated that with various faculty at Johns Hopkins. So uh, perhaps part of that plan was for them to keep the uh, official statistics. It's very unusual for a private university to be involved in such uh, a public health endeavor. Um, it's almost always done by a public health agency like the CDC. Because of the grants that they receive on the research and so on, right? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure, but I would imagine that uh, Gates is one of the primary financiers of that operation. Mm -hmm. Now, I saw a flu vaccine insert, which shows one of the ingredients is coronavirus. If someone had the flu shot in the past, can they show positive for CV? Well, the thing is, if you look back at other coronaviruses and the papers that claim to have isolated those viruses, you'll see that they use the same exact techniques. So the other genetic sequences that they found also uh, don't really have a clear origin because they were taken from an impure sample. So it's really hard to say what exactly it is that they're putting in the flu vaccine. But I can tell you that there are several outcomes that have been measured from flu vaccines. Uh, for example, there is a study that shows if you take the flu vaccine three years in a row, you actually have a higher risk of getting the flu subsequently. There are also uh, many reports in the VAERS database, which is a voluntary reporting system for vaccine uh, adverse events. And it's not uncommon to see cases of what's known as Guillain-Barre syndrome, from the flu vaccine. And that is essentially a uh, paralyzing reaction. And sometimes it can be permanent. If you look back at some of the uh, vaccines that were kind of rushed to market in a epidemic type situation, like the swine flu uh, vaccine in the 70s, uh, you'll see an increased uh, incidence of paralysis uh, similar to what can occur with the flu vaccine in, in those cases. And there were many, many lawsuits uh, related to that at the time. Is it true that you can only get a virus when injected? Well, um, I have uh, done quite a bit of research on viruses and have not actually found any papers that have uh, successfully proven that a virus is the cause of a human disease. So it would be really difficult to answer that question because I'm not sure that there are any viruses that cause disease that actually exist. Um, I have a different uh, theory about what may actually be the particles that are known as viruses. 
But certainly, if you inject anything into a person, it could easily make them sick. And that could be virtually any type of foreign substance. What about dengue fever or chikungunya or one of those strange ones that you see a lot in the tropics that are transmitted allegedly by mosquitoes? Do you lend credence to this or is this another conspiracy? Yeah, well, I think actually all of the viruses uh, that they allege to cause disease are all uh, part of a psychological operation. Um, so those would be included. I do think, however, that the, the meaning of the word virus is very important to consider in this respect, because what it means is it also comes from the Latin, just like uh, the names of our enterprises, and it means a poison or noxious substance. So what I have found, and I know this to be true based on my own experience for several viral or allegedly viral illnesses, that what they are really is a response to a toxic substance and that the symptoms are essentially a way for our body to purge that toxic substance. So in that sense, calling it a virus, meaning poison, would actually be accurate. However, what I think these particles that they show under the microscope that they allege are the cause of disease are actually a response to the disease. And what I think these uh, refer to are what's known as exosomes. Now, exosomes were officially discovered about 30 years ago, but I believe that they were actually discovered when the first image was seen that was claimed to be a virus. And what exosomes are, are basically a type of small vesicle, like a tiny little water balloon, much, much smaller than the size of a cell. And they contain some kind of genetic material like RNA or DNA and all of the forms that are alleged to be contained by viruses. And they contain a membrane with receptors that identify a target cell. And they are They are secreted by all the cells in our body and all mammalian cells, in fact, um, and they're secreted all the time at like a low base rate. When we are exposed to some kind of insult, and this could be a number of things, including various types of toxins like heavy metals, um, organic molecules, uh, antibiotics and other drugs, uh, psychological shock, uh, ionizing radiation, uh, asthma and autoimmune diseases and Uh, acute infections, the exosomes were, are induced and produced at a much higher level. And they are thought mostly to serve a role of communication between cells at a distance. And the receptor that they have is like a lock, and it, they're unable to move on their own, just like they say about viruses. And they would passively move around the body through the blood and other fluids. And when they encounter the cell that has the right Um, uh, key for their lock, they will then um, bind with that cell and inject their genetic material into that cell, which contains the information they're trying to communicate. It may also be possible that this mechanism works between uh, organisms, uh, like from one person to another, or may even communicate information between species, but there's not uh, much scientific evidence on that so far. The other role that exosomes may play is in removing toxins from the extracellular space. So there's some interesting research demonstrating that they have the ability to actually take up toxins and that when they do this, um, that they protect the cells from the deadly effects of those toxins. And that was the next question. Apparently, there's confusion between viruses and exosomes. Can exosomes be transmitted from person to person? Well, it's uh, really not fully known from scientific experiments, but it certainly is conceivable because exosomes have been shown to be uh, excreted by our body, like similarly to how you might think viruses pass between people. Um, but really, there's only indirect evidence to look at this. Uh, so there is genetic material that seems to be foreign that is present in exosomes. In fact, there are many studies that look at exosomes genetic material and claim that they actually contain viral genetic material as well as human genetic material. So I think it's possible that viruses were misidentified as exosomes because the idea that there was a unseen virus 
that caused diseases that were unable to be explained by the leading uh, scientists at the time in the context of germ theory. When the electron microscope was first invented, they were basically watering at the mouth to see if they could see what they, you know, a viral particle um, that they already believed was causing disease. So as soon as they saw uh, particles that they didn't recognize, they basically labeled them as viruses. But the problem was that in using the rules that the germ theorists developed to prove that a germ causes a disease, according to germ theory, they were unable to satisfy those criteria for viruses. And so what happened is there was a prominent virologist named Thomas Rivers who modified those criteria essentially to make it easier to prove that a virus causes disease. And he, he really said as much in the paper where he outlined these criteria. However, I have still not found any evidence that any virus has satisfied even these modified Rivers criteria to prove that it causes disease. And it's pretty straightforward actually to prove such a thing because all you would have to do is be able to filter and purify and isolate a viral particle from a sick person and also demonstrate that you couldn't isolate the same thing from a healthy person. And that's the negative control that I was talking about before that's really important uh, to show. And then once you have that particle that's purified from the sick individual, you then put it in a healthy individual and it should cause the same disease. And the extra step would be to then re-isolate that uh, particle from the person that you've infected. But even the first step has not been achieved as far as anything I've read for any virus. So in other words, they've not demonstrated that they were able to filter, isolate, and purify a viral particle from sick people and not from healthy people for any condition. From a layman's perspective, I just want to understand more the word exosome. Exo meaning outside. Is it outside of our body? Is it outside of our cell? And some or somatic, I think that that, that carries the word memory. Uh, but is this something that exists within us, outside of us, outside of our cell? And how does it interact with our body? Yeah, well, this exosomes, and, and you're right, exo means outside, and some, I think, actually comes from the root of body, soma. And so, but it's talking about outside the cell, uh, not outside of our, our whole entire mm -hmm. body. And what happens is that our, our own cells make these exosomes. They're uh, packaged up. There's genetic material put inside and they're in contained in larger vesicles inside the cell. And those larger vesicles then fuse with the cell membrane and let out the smaller exosomal particles. And that's essentially how they're released from our cells. And they're being produced all the time. But when there's an insult, like I mentioned before, that our cells crank up the production um, in order to communicate that information. And so they basically would uh, secrete a certain type of exosome that has a certain purpose and certain information and would send that out to other parts of our body to convey that information. And ostensibly, this would be so the body can be prepared to face whatever uh, insult it's responding to. It's interesting when you mentioned Soma. It's the, the recreational drug use in the novel, the, uh, the Brave New World uh, book. Yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, when, the, when I'm thinking of the flu, you know, it, it seems they call it the flu season. Let's say during each year, do we have, I hate to use the word soap or, or detergent inside of us, that once a year our body says, this is the time to get rid of all the impurities and let's do it now. And those who have a lot more, those are the ones who get a fever. Those are the ones who feel sick. And those who are pretty clean and eat clean and have a, you know, a good lifestyle don't experience the same thing. Is there a correlation here between this? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, one thing uh, to think about is because germ theory has been so widely accepted by allopathic mainstream medicine that there's never really been any research funding or any impetus to do additional studies to look for alternative causes of disease. In other words, the, the only thing they're looking at as a cause of disease are viruses and bacteria and other germs. So given that, um, 
it makes it a little bit difficult to talk about what are the true causes of disease. And you have to rely on individuals' experience working with people. And uh, you have to rely on uh, wisdom that comes from indigenous cultures uh, and other health traditions. And taking all that into consideration, uh, one principle that, that is definitely true is that our body goes through cycles of renewal. And this is even evident in mainstream medical science, where basically we replace all the cells of our body over time in a period uh, somewhere between one and two years. Some of our organs uh, replace their cells um, more frequently than others, but this is essentially uh, done on an ongoing basis. Much of this work is done by our body during our sleep. And if you take this into consideration, there are also seasonal cycles. Um, in fact, it's been shown that all of our individual or organs have their own timing mechanisms. Um, and, you know, it's most easy to understand this from the point of view of our circadian rhythms, our sleep-wake cycle, that we all know that we get tired as the sun goes down and we get more alert when the sun comes up in the morning. And that's one of the natural cycles that we're all familiar with. But there are also seasonal cycles. And my understanding about colds and flu is that they are essentially a seasonal cycle that allows us to shed and regenerate our upper airway lining. So that includes, you know, inside our nose, throat, uh, possibly lower. Um, and, uh, you know, that tissue needs annual um, refurbishment because think about all of the air that we breathe all the time, right? There's a large volume of air that's going through the upper airway. And especially inside your nose, there are many mechanisms to filter that air. There are the nose hairs, there are the cilia on the cells, which are small, tiny projections off the cell that trap particulates. There's also a uh, wavy bone structure that increases the surface area. They're called nasal turbinates. Um, and all of this uh, particulates and other matter that's in the air, and you know we live in a world that has substantial both outdoor and indoor air pollution, all of that junk basically gets caught inside of the lining of our nose and upper airway so that we don't it doesn't get into the lungs where it can prevent uh, oxygen exchange. So it would make sense that on an annual basis, we would go through a process where our body uh, sheds out all of this toxic uh, junk that's accumulated over the year and then uh, rebuilds the mucous membranes with a, a new lining. That can uh, is just like when you change the air filter in your car. Uh, you know that if you don't do that, then um, you start to have bad smells and other things going on. And so this would just be like an annual filter change. And then you're exactly right based on how much toxins your body is exposed to during the course of the year and based on how efficiently your body uses other mechanisms to purge those toxins, uh, such as, you know, going to the bathroom, um, you could need perhaps more uh, of a refurbishment job compared to other people. And that would probably correlate with having a more severe uh, upper respiratory illness and possibly even having multiple episodes of the illness over the course of a season. And yet people go to the doctor and they're prescribed an antiviral, I mean, I'm sorry, an antibacterial or a, a, uh, antibiotics and so on. Is that even effective? Well, in a sense, antibiotics are quite effective. Um, what happens, uh, so what I found in looking at germ theory is that um, it's essentially there are several experiments that really disprove germ theory, which is the theory that a germ comes from outside the body, invades it, and causes disease. But in fact, uh, there's a mountain of evidence to support what's called terrain theory, which is an alternative to that which essentially says that the health of the terrain or the environment of your body's cells and tissues is what determines whether there's disease or not. So, for example, all of the accumulation of these toxic materials filtered out of the air is the cause of the disease. And what happens is that there is damage to the tissues from those uh, poisons or toxins. And by the way, also mal malnourishment of specific nutrients can also result in damage to the tissue as a cause of uh, illness. But 
once the damage is done, then the body calls on uh, the troops to repair it. And that includes our immune system, of course, which everyone was familiar with. But it also includes calling uh, microbes um, from our body to the site. And the microbes, and I can explain how they're generated a little bit later, but essentially they serve the same kind of function that we would observe out in nature. So if we're walking in the woods and you happen to see uh, like a decomposing animal body, uh, you, if you look closely or you look under the microscope, you would see you know millions of microorganisms that are breaking down the tissue into its component nutrients so that it can basically be reincorporated into the soil and support the growth of new life. So the bacteria and fungi in our body that respond to the site of this illness, so let's say they go to your nose and sinuses, they're doing the same job. They're breaking down and recycling the damaged tissue um, so that it can be cleared away and any basic uh, components that can be used as raw material to rebuild it will be available. Now, during the course of this uh, phase of disease, uh, which is really the recovery phase, but that's when you experience the symptoms. And the symptoms of, let's say, a runny nose and nasal congestion have to do with increased uh, secretions. So the bacteria and the immune cells both uh, secrete chemical factors that cause the secretions to occur from your body. And those secretions are actually a way to get out the toxic material that's being broken down so that it can leave your body. And so the, the, the mucus essentially carries it right out. And when it drips out, uh, it's out of your body and gone and can't cause any more damage. Now, if you allow this process to continue to completion, then you're gonna have a refreshed and renewed uh, piece of tissue inside your nose and sinuses, and it's going to be in much better shape. If you take antibiotics, for example, what they do is they kill all of the bacteria, not only at the site of the illness, uh, the ones doing this recycling job, but they also kill uh, a large fraction of bacteria elsewhere in your body that are doing other functions for your body. In your microbiome, for example, it kills the good bacteria. Exactly. And, you know, all the bacteria in your body, they're all good. <laughs> they're, uh, they're, they're not really, they're not bad uh, in any way. They can sometimes become unruly, but only if you treat them badly, uh, like with antibiotics, for example. And so when you wipe out all those bacteria, well, then the factors that are causing your symptoms, like all of the mucus secretion and inflammation, are no longer being secreted because the bacteria that were secreting them are gone. So you have a relief from the symptoms. However, since you prematurely killed and removed those bacteria, now they're not able to finish the recycling job. So this leaves you vulnerable to repeat the process again and get another infection. And I think, you know, that this is most commonly observed with uh, recurrent childhood infections like ear infections and strep throat. Uh, where they're taking antibiotics each time and then they their body can't finish the recycling job. So they have to repeat the biological program of the illness again in order to uh, finish the job. But it keeps getting interrupted by the antibiotics. This is so interesting because it seems that we're told, even in the medical industry, and we'll discuss that later because they're given a toolbox and we really can't blame them, but I'll leave that for later. But If we have a high fever, if it's really, really high, but I guess we have to lower it a little bit, right? But lowering the fever prematurely with medication, uh, putting ice in an area that needs to create inflammation to address an issue, do we always try to tell our body, no, don't do that when their bodies are, it's actually trying to help us? Yeah, I, I believe that that's, that's correct, that we're basically, if we try to relieve the symptoms, what we're doing is actually um, interfering with the body's own healing process. Uh, kind of like when you pick off a scab, that it just delays that healing uh, further, even though it may be uh, satisfying to do that. So uh, it's important to let those processes play out. And you are right to say that if a fever is too high for too long, it can cause problems like, like a seizure, especially in children. But there are things that you can do to support the body's process that can relieve those things in a way that is still beneficial. So, for example, uh, with a fever, if you simply provide extra hydration and do something like an enema or take castor oil, 
it allows your body to purge some of the toxins that are resulting in the fever or the need for the fever to leave your body more quickly. So in that kind of a situation, what you're actually doing is you're supporting the body's detoxification and renewal processes. So generally, when I uh, work with people and they want to know, you know, what can I do to help um, in an acute infectious type process, it, usually what I'm suggesting is to perform some kind of detoxification procedure that will just support and hasten the body completing its own process rather than trying to suppress it or interfere with it. Can we summarize this by saying that it's not the terrain, it's not the germs, it's the terrain? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you'd be almost quoting Claude Bernard, yeah, who was exactly. uh, one of the scientists who, who uh, made that discovery through his experiments. Exactly. Now, I want to be clear about something. Two-prong question. Is it true there are many variants to the coronavirus, and are there tests determining if someone has COVID-19 specifically, or are they testing for all variants of coronavirus? Well, you know, I know it, it's hard to kind of get to this underlying thing, but they've really never shown that they've identified a coronavirus. So what they do is that they look at the genetic sequences of this material and they compare it and they find a lot of variations. But what I think is really going on here is that they're just looking at our own genetic material and they're just finding individual variations or cultural variations, right? Because from one human to another, we don't have the exact same sequence of uh, base pairs in our DNA or RNA. So I think they're just finding individual differences and what they're doing is calling each one a different coronavirus or saying that it mutated or it's a different strain and things like that. But they haven't actually identified or and purified a entity that they can then extract the genetic material from directly so they know the source uh, and that they can compare the properties of one to another um, so that they can, you know, determine if they are related and uh, other characteristics about them. So much of the time when they're saying this, it's really based upon layers and layers of false science and conjecture. The tests themselves don't measure any virus directly. Uh, I talked a little bit about the PCR test and how it just measures a genetic sequence. But there's another test, uh, an antibody test. And the exact um, way that the antibody tests work or any data related to them have not been published. Uh, so it's not available. Really, the only document that I have to date that um, says anything detailed about the antibody test is from the FDA. And in emergency situations like this, or I mean, in this case, it's a manufactured emergency, but nonetheless, the FDA feels that it's enough for them to give what they call authorization for these tests. Now, this is very different from FDA approval. To obtain FDA approval, you have to submit a long application. You have to conduct several studies of various types uh, to meet their criteria. And then it, it can take a year or more before you get a decision whether the test is approved. And, you know, this is something I looked into in a lot of detail when I uh, had my medical device company because I was planning to uh, apply for approval of the medical device. And it's a, a similar uh, but less onerous process for medical device approval than a diagnostic test. So the authorization is basically means you can use it, but we haven't really evaluated it. And in that document, there's a letter from the FDA to the manufacturer of the antibody test uh, authorizing its use, they basically say they don't really know what it does. And they use words like may, possibly, and things like that uh, to essentially communicate that they don't really know if it's accurate at all. And this is interesting because at the beginning of April, I remember the news, a tiger at Bronx Zoo tests positive for COVID-19. And then a few days ago, eight big cats in Bronx, in the Bronx Zoo, again, test positive. But... You probably heard the news yesterday or the day before, or the president of Tanzania saying that they were able to send tests with, what was it, uh, a papaya, bird, and a goat samples, and they put names, human names, and they all came back. Two came back positive and one undetermined. Have you heard that? Did you hear that? 
No, I haven't heard that, but that's it's quite amusing. And uh, there are similar studies with the HIV test uh, as well, showing how uh, inaccurate uh, and meaningless it is. So the president of Tanzania is really doubting this whole testing business because it's so inaccurate. Yeah, well, that's a really astute observation from him. And it, it's really good to hear that someone in a position of uh, power like that has some uh, realistic way of, of looking at this situation. Not to mention he fired his chief medical officer, but that's a different story. Is the goal to test as many people as possible or to cause the highest amount of false test results? Well, I think that they have to um, control a little bit how many false positive tests they do, because if it was 100% positive, I think people would be quite suspicious that something was awry. So I know that, uh, I don't know this for sure for the COVID-19 testing, but I do know that when they initially rolled out the HIV testing, that they required an excessive amount of dilution of the blood samples before running the test. And this uh, was uh, very excessive compared to all other antibody tests that were available at the time. And so the person that recognized this felt that this was a way to basically make sure that you don't get 100% positive tests. And they could essentially calculate what the appropriate dilution would be to yield a certain percent positive. And this is just like when in college they grade according to a curve. They find out they want most of the people to have a B or a C, and so they they draw up a statistical curve around the test scores, and they basically put the, the middle over the C, and then they determine the standard deviation, and that tells you what grade you get. So just the way that you could design a test to give a certain – if it was a nonspecific test – Uh, that would be, you know, potentially positive in everyone. You could engineer it such that it could give you um, whatever percentage you wanted to be positive. And there's some other evidence that they may have been manipulating the test this way because there's not one standard protocol that's done across the world. Um, various countries have uh, different protocols, which includes using different primers and probes for the PCR test, which are basically the starting point where the RNA amplification occurs. They also use different numbers of amplification cycles. And we know from looking at uh, the PCR technology that if you uh, go above a certain number of amplification cycles, you can essentially show a positive result in every test. So I think there's been some tweaking and manipulation about, about uh, the tests in order to reach a certain um, you know, target uh, positive rate. But The most important thing is that the test is not measuring something that we know what it is. So if you really look at it closely, it's unable to tell what the test is measuring. So in my opinion, it's completely meaningless. If that's the case, for example, in school, you're not expected that everybody's got to get an A or an F. And if you do, that's why we have the curve. But in this case, would it be difficult to understand that possibly a company might be manufacturing these tests to give out 50% positives and 50% negatives? Yeah, it, it certainly is a possibility. I haven't looked at any data that shows what the testing rates are. Um, I know that they are probably different in people who are symptomatic versus not symptomatic. There's a big difference between dying from and dying with COVID-19. Why are the, aren't the public health organizations differentiating both? Well, the, the only um, reason that I can really come up with, uh, based on my own thinking, is that they want to inflate the number of deaths associated with COVID-19. That's my speculation, but I wanted to ask you for that. Now, here's something I'd like to get your opinion on. An undercover report from Project Veritas, not my Veritas, showing a CBS News segment at Cherry Health, a hospital in New York, faking a COVID-19 drive through testing site and a line of cars. More and more of these stage events are happening in many areas of the USA. It seems they want more testing, even though many tests are not accurate and are inflating the numbers, and not that many people are truly sick. Apparently, the goal is to fake the numbers in order to introduce a vaccine, not to mention the financial incentive of inflating the numbers. 
From your perspective, what do you see? Well, listen, I mean, even if you, you know, didn't want to consider what I say about there being no evidence of a virus and you just want to look at the mortality numbers, um, even Dr. Fauci wrote an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine stating that this COVID illness was akin to a seasonal flu with a mortality rate of 0.1%. Um, also, a Professor uh, John Ioannidis out of uh, Stanford University, who's been one of the biggest critics of the validity of scientific research, has done some statistical estimates saying that if there were widespread testing based on available data, that the rate would be even lower than that. So you can see that even if you take it at face value and believe that there's a real new illness and a real new virus, uh, you can see that it is not deadly by any sense of the word. So why would they be going to all these extreme lengths to manage something that is uh, no deadlier and perhaps significantly less deadly than the regular flu? So take that into account and also look at all of the staged um, kind of publicity stunts, uh, if you will, that have been going on, like you alluded to. So there was uh, very early in when the first cases came to New York, they had this um, news bulletin about a hospital called Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. And they showed some video making it appear that it was really busy and overrun. And they showed a white um, tractor trailer in the back that they said was a refrigerated truck to uh, take all of the bodies away. Now, I thought it was very suspicious right away that they chose Elmhurst Hospital because Elmhurst Hospital is a very small 103-bed hospital in Queens. And we're talking about New York City with a huge population center and some of the world's leading hospital facilities that are huge. I mean, there are hospitals that have 5,000 beds in New York. So why would they focus on this tiny little hospital with only a tiny fraction of the capacity as these large uh, mega academic hospital centers? So that was the first uh, thing that I thought was very suspicious. But if you wanted to give the appearance of a hospital system being overrun, it would be much easier to fill up a tiny hospital and make it look overcrowded. And I think that's most likely the reason. To control the there, optics. Exactly. And there have been many, many examples of this. And, you know, I've, I've heard from many healthcare providers who have contacted me and to tell their personal observations about what's going on. And I've heard from people not just in the United States, but also in the United Kingdom, in uh, Australia, and, and a few other places. And every single account that I've heard is basically telling me that the hospitals are all empty. And that they're laying off healthcare workers left and right. And, but they have very strict security at the perimeter of these facilities. They don't want anyone going in there and knowing what's going on. And they certainly don't want anyone in there, uh, you know, with their cell phones that can shoot a video of empty hospitals. So why would you have a situation where healthcare workers are laid off and where hospitals are empty uh, in uh, a situation where they're telling us that it's the worst health crisis that's occurred in a hundred years or more. And this is the part that I could not understand. Why are nurses and medical personnel being laid off in the middle of a medical crisis? And I show people I, on, a, on a daily basis almost, doctor, I get these videos of people going to hospitals and filming and there's nothing going on. I show this to some of my friends and they say that's fake. The news is saying otherwise. How do you dialogue with these people who are so tapped into the official narrative and they don't want to get out of that spectrum? Well, I, I really wish I knew the answer to that, Mel. Uh, but my, my uh, thinking is that there are certain people that are just closed off uh, to this information. And I think one of the biggest factors has to do with the extreme fear that people are experiencing. When you're so afraid of your own uh, potential death, you go into what I refer to as a survival mode. And that gives you tunnel vision. And in fact, that's, that's protective if you're facing a real danger. But it doesn't allow you to consider the bigger picture or look at alternative ways of thinking about the situation. The only real resolution is for the threat to be extinguished and the fear response to no longer be needed. 
But in addition to that, you know, and I'm sure you've talked about this uh, with a lot of guests on your show, that we have gone through a program of indoctrination uh, since the youngest age where we are taught to respect authority and to follow what authority says. And we're supposed to get our information from designated experts, which includes, you know, the television news and includes the uh, scientists or doctors that are officially sanctioned by our governmental bodies. And that we're supposed to trust them because they are taking care of us and looking out for us. And it's a really difficult thing for people to suddenly realize that 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 is completely false. And there's so many examples of it in the historical record. I mean, you don't have to look very hard to uh, find it, but it is really disturbing and it creates so much cognitive dissonance that most people are just really not willing to face it. I mean, in having a conversation with some of my own family members about this, you know, despite how much evidence there is and how obvious it is, because some of this evidence is just so obvious. Um, like we were talking about with the layoffs, uh, that there's no way you could not question that if you're th- if you're open to thinking about things rationally. But, you know, they say things to me like, you know, I just can't believe the government would would be harming us in some way. And although that's a very naive perspective, I think that's the perspective that most of us have or most people, not most of us. <laughs> it's very unfortunate. If autopsies were to be performed on most deaths suspected of having been caused by COVID-19, what percentage, in your opinion, would you say would be really attributed to natural causes? Well, you know, in my opinion, 100% would be attributable to other causes. And I think they would be all the normal things that people die of. You know, in the United States, the, the official leading causes of death are cancer, um, heart disease, and respiratory disease. And But what's happened is that there have been specific orders not to perform autopsies. For example, I was uh, sent a document from New Jersey. And in this document, it was outlined that their normal procedure when there's a declared health crisis is that they would send all of the bodies uh, who died of the supposed health crisis cause to the coroner for autopsy. And of course, that makes a lot of sense because you want to make sure that you're getting accurate information about a possible epidemic or a new cause of death. But in this situation, they specifically said with the COVID-19, we're not doing that because basically we know that they died of COVID-19. So there's no need for an autopsy. So don't send any bodies to the coroner. And you can easily see through this technique that it's a way to make sure that all of the deaths get counted as COVID-19 related. Now, I did see a very interesting uh, journalism piece where they interviewed several uh, funeral directors because, you know, they're, they're people that uh, have a unique perspective to observe what's going on because they see the death certificates and all the dead bodies go to them. And they were saying basically that almost all the death certificates they're seeing say COVID-19 and they have a lot of doubt about the validity of that. But there was one account that really stood out and it was basically the decedent was related to someone on the Supreme Court. I believe the Supreme Court of the United States, but they didn't specify. And what happened was that that, um, you know, Supreme Court justice Uh, called the coroner and in the county and said, you know, I want you to do an autopsy. And so it was like one of the only uh, bodies that the funeral home sent for the autopsy. And of course, when it came back, the cause of death was changed from COVID to something else. This is incredible because a lot of people are doubting some of the information that we're releasing. But here, for example, this is from USA Today, so that people know this is true. How can anyone not believe that increasing the number of COVID-19 deaths may create an avenue for states to receive a larger portion of federal dollars? Already, some states are complaining that they're not getting enough of the CARES Act dollars. But take a look at this, folks. Anybody who's diagnosed, it would be a diagnosis alone, $5,000 for Medicare. If it's COVID-19 pneumonia, then it's $13,000. And if the COVID-19 pneumonia patient ends up on a ventilator, it goes up to $39,000. Now, this is not conspiracy. If you are a city or a state that is bankrupt, and this is your opportunity to not let a crisis go to waste, 
Is this why New York, for example, they have an executive order, do not resuscitate law? Is this happening right now? And people are now questioning it, doctor. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, these kind of financial incentives are nothing new. Um, For example, you know, in the normal course of business, if a patient in a hospital dies, the hospital gets reimbursed about 10 times as much money as if the patient recovers and goes home. So in the current situation, because the hospitals are all empty, their revenue is way, way down. That's why they're laying off workers, because they can't afford to maintain the salaries and still stay in business. So essentially, they are on the verge of being closed and running running out of assets. And any incentive that can keep them afloat and preserve the integrity of the hospital will definitely be strongly encouraged. I mean, the way healthcare workers and hospitals make decisions these days is much, much less autonomous than it was even when I started my career. What they've done is they've put electronic health records, uh, EHR is what they call it, but basically a set, you know, electronic medical records on a computer rather than on paper. And the systems that they use are not just like a word processor. They're all menu-driven. And so you have to go through all these menus when you put in information for a patient. And as you go through the menus and put in the information, these messages pop up telling you what to do, basically. I mean, they don't say, you must do this. They say, uh, would you like to order this test? Would you like to order this drug? Did you remember to do this? And what those uh, dialogue boxes or pop-ups say is determined not by a group of doctors that reach a consensus. They're determined by hospital administrators or other uh, policy makers uh, in in some kind of bureaucratic agency, Um, but mostly by the hospital. And they are formulated in such a way to maximize revenue. So many times the decision may be technically in the hands of the doctor or healthcare provider, but they know that if they don't follow those suggestions, that they're going to be flagged and eventually somebody's going to talk to them and they're going to, you know, ask them to change what they do and follow those instructions more carefully to meet the hospital's bottom line. So these incentives currently for, you know, diagnosing COVID-19 and for putting patients on a ventilator, you know that they are resulting in people being diagnosed inappropriately and inappropriately putting on the, being put on a ventilator. And this ventilator issue is a really, really important issue because a ventilator is really a treatment of last resort. And there are only certain conditions that can someone can really potentially benefit from being on a ventilator. So in order to delay that, they have a whole series of steps that they do initially when someone experiences some type of respiratory distress. And in the current case, the hospitals have all changed their protocols to essentially skip all those steps. And there are at least four steps that they're skipping and going straight to a ventilator. And this is really problematic because when you put someone on a ventilator without them needing it, like, for example, even a a person who's perfectly healthy, you, you cause significant injury and even death. So this is a really uh, inappropriate procedure, and it comes from this financial incentive, uh, which comes from this overall goal of increasing the perception of uh, cases and deaths from COVID-19. Yeah, the financial incentive, 13000 for a confirmed case and three times that for a ventilator, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but I hear it, it has caused an 80% death rate in New York. Could it be that... They're incentivizing a hospital to cause more deaths because, especially the elderly, because they are perceived not to be producing for the state or the country. Take Italy as an example, with the highest number of elderly per capita in Europe. Are they motivating the hospitals to basically turn their heads and just let them die? Right. Well, that's why I mentioned that even uh, before this, the reimbursement was such that hospitals made about 10 times as much revenue when the patient died. So they've already been incentivized to um, increase the you know chances of, of death among the hospital patients. So this is really just a continuation of that. It's not, not really a new procedure. So it was easy to exploit for this purpose since it already really existed. 
What I'm about to say, folks, you might believe it or you might not, but I've received letters from people all over the world where they're, they have relatives who had something else, like, you know, a heart disease or a long-term cancer, and they die, and all of a sudden it's attributable to COVID-19. And even in one country, I'm not going to name the name, in Latin America, they were offered to pay their funeral expenses if they sign on a paper that their relative died of COVID-19. Have you heard similar stories? Wow. Well, not not exactly that story, but I've heard a lot of similar, similar stories. In fact, um, an acquaintance of mine who's also a healthcare professional, um, uh, her mother recently passed away. And her mother was in a nursing home with end-stage Alzheimer's disease. And when she passed, Uh, this person reported that she died of COVID-19. And, you know, this is is just uh, totally ridiculous. I mean, it's pretty obvious that she would have died any time. And it seems that authorities are are incentivizing and pushing uh, doctors to use take every step or opportunity possible to label a death as being caused by COVID-19. I've even heard that they are testing some people post-mortem that were not diagnosed on their death certificate with COVID-19. And if they have a positive test post-mortem, they're then changing the death certificate to say COVID-19. And this is in combination with other people who they they suspect and then put on the death certificate that they died of COVID-19. They're being told not to perform a test on those people post-mortem. So in other words, only perform the test if it might increase the number of death certificates that say COVID-19, but don't do any testing if it could reduce the numbers. This is preposterous. Now, something else I hear is that the new guidelines, CDC, WHO, say that if someone, even without testing, is suspected, that's the word, suspected of having COVID-19, a doctor can write on the death certificate COVID-19. How can you suspect COVID-19 when there is a plethora of other variables to the equation? Well, if if the only patients in the hospital are ones that are suspected with COVID-19, then essentially anyone who dies in the hospital would have that suspicion. And I, I imagine that almost all the patients who are dying in the hospital, uh, that that gets put on their death certificate. I was talking to um, an EMT in a, a suburb of a major city, and they were telling me that uh, what they were Uh, instructed to do was totally change the procedure of what they do when they respond to some to a call where there's a, a code like meaning someone wasn't breathing or their heart wasn't pumping and it used to be that they would uh, perform CPR and wait for the paramedics and the paramedics when they arrived they could administer drugs like advanced cardiac life-saving drugs and they would be on the phone with the doctor at the local hospital who would be looking at telemetry of the heart rhythm and vital signs uh, and other information and they would basically perform life-saving measures until the doctor um, at the hospital told them either to pronounce the person dead or to bring them in the hospital for further treatment Now, what happened is, and this happened right at the beginning or right before the beginning of when uh, this hit the city where the person was from, and they were told that they were to do CPR for 20 minutes and then pronounce the person dead. And this was a major, major change because they didn't have the authority to, to make death pronouncements at all uh, prior to this. Um, And you could see how their initial understanding was, oh, well, there's going to be a lot more calls and uh, and there were um, and that they need to spread out the resources. But essentially what what happened is that they would arrive to the scene and find a dead body um, and they would just presume it must be COVID-19 because that's why else would someone die in their home? We haven't seen that before. But what was actually happening is that the people that would normally go to the hospital who are sick and dying, they are not allowed to go to the hospital now because the hospitals have closed all but a very few of their beds to patients that don't have COVID-19. So the people that were previously going to the hospital and would a high portion of them would die in the hospital, now they're dying at home instead. And perhaps this is actually a benefit for them because they get to die around their family members and without a bunch of needles and tubes sticking in and out of their body. But nonetheless, it gives the perception 
that more people are dying because the paramedics and EMTs aren't used to arriving at a lot of dead bodies during their shift. And people in the neighborhoods are not used to seeing, you know, hearses pull up to their neighbor's home to take away their dead neighbor's body. So even though there's no change in the overall death rate, or in fact, it's a little bit lower, um, it gives, once again, the perception that more people are dying because they're dying in a place where you're not used to seeing them. And we have to take our one and only break. I'm trying to prevent certain words from coming out of my mouth until part two, because social media has been very, very eager to censor everything I'm saying lately. And there are certain words, for example, one word, four plus one equals, you know what number, and the letter that comes after the letter E, we'll discuss that when we come back to see if there's a connection. I've heard from three different doctors around the world. They're changing the way they're treating this They're finding blood clots and they're using antibiotics, anticoagulants with almost 100% success. We're not hearing that in the news, but how can people learn more about your work, Dr. Kaufman? Yeah, well, I would uh, definitely suggest that you uh, visit my website, which is Andrew Kaufman, MD, like medicaldoctor.com. And that's uh, Kaufman, K-A-U-F as in Frank, M-A-N. Um, also, you can check out my YouTube channel, uh, which is just Andrew Kaufman. And my show there is called Medicamentum Authentica. That's M-E-D-I-C-A-M-E-N-T-U-M. And Authentica is like authentic with an A at the end. Too bad you're not here around my area because you'll be my doctor for sure. <laughs> Don't go anywhere, well, folks. We have a lot more to discuss. We're going to get deeper into this rabbit hole. And I want to give you some positives. I want to remain optimistic that what Dr. Kaufman is doing, what I'm doing, and many of our listeners who are taking action is going to have a, a positive effect in the future so that we can look back and look at this chapter, dark chapter of our history, and just not forget, but say we did it, we won. When we come back, this is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Today's special guest is Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know. <laughs>